Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. The East India Company was in existence for over 250 years. From 1600 to 1858, it was the biggest corporation in world history. Largely forgotten in the UK, it was responsible for the opium wars with China, it contributed to devastating famines in India, and was a perpetrator of cruel employment practices in Bangladesh and other British colonies. Not surprising, then, that the memory of the East India Company is very much alive throughout India and the Far East, where it's a byword for exploitation and oppression. Its story holds important lessons about the dangers of the overweening power of large corporations. In this podcast, Nick Robbins, author of The Corporation That Changed the World, How the East India Company Shaped the Modern Multinational, talks to Jane Trowell of Platform, an organisation that uses art, activism, education and research to work for social and ecological justice. They've been working together on projects around the legacy of empire for Britain in the 21st century. And they met up at the National Maritime Museum in London, where the Traders' Gallery focuses on the history of the East India Company. Jane started by asking Nick to describe how he first came to take an interest in the East India Company. It's an interesting journey. I've been working in India and Bangladesh, uh, working on issues around fair trade and ethical trade in the textile industry, and I've come to learn there about the impact of the East India Company, on, particularly on Bengal's textile industry. And then came to work in a city, working in socially responsible investment, and uh, went to find the location of the headquarters of the East India Company on Bedmore Street. And that's where the Lloyds building is now, the big glamorous steel and glass building. And I was expecting to see uh, some form of plaque saying, here was the, here was the site of the East India Company, 1600 to 1858, full stop. But there was nothing there, and we have so many plaques around the city, such an emphasis on heritage for very minor things. In fact, on the site, there is a plaque to a postage stamp. And it just struck me as something odd that this was this biggest corporation in in world history, and it has somehow disappeared. So then uh, I started doing some research into it, looking at actually uh, how it was seen at the time, and from that, the the book um, came along. For those of us who don't know much about the East India Company, why is it such an extremely important uh, fact of our business well, history. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, it was founded in 1600. It was a, uh, a company uh, with shareholders which had a charter for all the trade between England uh, and Asia. And at that time, England in particular was very much, I suppose, the poor cousin compared with, with Asia. And traditionally, uh, wealth has flowed from west to east in the global economy. The, uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, there were complaints about the flood of uh, bullion to pay for peppers and textiles. So Britain was in a very, very poor place, and the point of the East India Company to set up was to try and get access for, for this uh, very marginal sort of maritime king- kingdom of, of, of England into the luxury markets of Asia to get access to spices uh, in particular. Um, so it was very much the supplicant, uh, very, very small, and struggling to get, um, get, in, get into these uh, big markets, particularly uh, the Mughal uh, Empire of India. And then gradually over the years, uh, and particularly in the 18th century, through the use of its, its private army, it started actually taking uh, control of key parts of, of India, particularly in Bengal, and became a sort of power behind the throne. And it was not just trading, but was engaged in, in real uh, conquest, in, in battles. 
and then started, I suppose, dominating the markets of India, uh, got involved in, in the opium trade, smuggling opium into, into China uh, in, the, in, the, in the first half of the 19th century, and uh, became more and more of, I suppose, almost you could say a public-private partnership, where it's still a pub public corporation, still had shareholders, still paying uh, dividends to its shareholders, but was increasingly doing the job of the British state, who was standing behind it. Um, and eventually it was wound up in 1858 after what was called the Indian Mutiny or the Great Rebellion against the East India Company. But I think one of the things which is interesting about the company is that it continued to pay out dividends for another 20 years or so. So actually its sort of corporate form extended much longer than its, its operational life. And so it's, it sort of paid its last uh, dividend uh, drawing on the taxes of India in uh, April 1874. So a very, very long existence, 1600 to 1874, many incarnations along the route, but probably all the way through its primary purpose to uh, generate profits for its shareholders and its uh, executives. In that picture, it seemed like a sort of, or could come across as a great English or British success story. But in fact, your book, The Corporation That Changed the World, is, is a sort of brutal dissection of the company, looking at it from an ethical standpoint, looking at it from a human rights standpoint, looking at, looking at how its own private army was used in this absolute suppression of local democratic control yeah I mean I think if you, if you look back at the uh, the company's record there are some examples of really outrageous negligence and, uh, and oppression in many ways and particularly once it had gained a, sort of a, a real foothold in India so domination in markets and driving prices down for, for, for its goods when it controlled Bengal uh, it was t uh, and was behind the throne. There was a, a, a drought. Company did not intervene. In fact, uh, it, its uh, executives intervened to sort of buy the, the the grain that remained in the market. So driving up the prices, drought led to famine. So it probably one of the biggest sort of corporate disasters in, in in world history. Anything up to seven million people died in, died in that famine. The opium war we touched on. The company was the monopoly uh, administrator of opium production in India and s smuggled that deliberately against Chinese laws into, in, into China. So there's some fairly extreme examples of, of, corporate, um, of corporate malpractice. And as I was writing the book, I suppose I was um, conscious and wary of applying 21st century values to that and, and saying, well, uh, those do look outrageous to us, uh, but maybe maybe they, they weren't uh, seen as, as, as bad at the time because maybe they had different values and, and so on. But I think what really impelled me to, drive to, to write the book was how contemporaries, particularly back here in, in England, saw the company's behaviour and actually did react with outrage and, and in many ways in disgust to some of the company's uh, behaviour. So in the book, do try and draw on that in terms of the, the poems and the, the plays and the caricatures that, that were generated by culture at the time in reaction to the, to the company's behaviour. So while the company was, was certainly powerful and a, and, a, and a part of the establishment, it was also the subject of a lot of cultural criticism at the time which I think then I think gave me the, the sense of confidence to look into it. It wasn't just looking looking back at this this historical object through 21st century eyes, but actually drawing on the critique of the time. With some people saying, in future times, people will look back with horror at the East India Company. 
that there is in, in this country there's been a willful ignorance probably around the, the legacy of that, that particular company um, unlike some of the slave trade companies which have been held up for you know scrutiny in a much more rigorous manner but of course in your travels in China and in India and Bangladesh you come across a very different story because in effect this is a corporation that ended up ruling a yeah. large chunk of the Indian subcontinent in India I think you, you talk to fairly, pretty much anyone, and, and East India Company's role as, as coming to trade and then eventually conquering is part of standard education, so everybody will know about it. And, and when I was t talking to some of these textile workers in, in Bangladesh, I mentioned the East India Company, and people said, oh, yes, yes, this, these are the people who chopped off our weaver's thumbs. So there was immediately a, a, a recognition, and there was the company, when they had taken control of Bengal, that they were so oppressive that they... Uh, chopped off the weaver's thumbs. And what I found when I was doing a research, I couldn't find evidence of that, but I found evidence of something probably even more horrific, is that the weavers chopped off their own thumbs so that they wouldn't actually be forced to weave under the company's orders. So this is, I mean, it's very close to the surface in India. This, this year, uh, 2012, India has passed new laws liberalizing the retail sector to allow multinational companies to come in and, and take majority stakes in retail companies. And immediately the gut reaction in Indian society to that, people who are opposing that, is to say it's the return of the East India Company. So it is, it's the motif for talking about, I suppose, companies, foreign companies. And in China, in uh, the Opium Museum in, uh, in, in modern uh, Guangzhou, who have the company there, very, very powerfully, have these fantastic full-life uh, tableau of the company, these opium chests with its, its logo or its chop mark there. Um, and it is seen as that they, it was the institution which was the driving force behind the opium trade, which resulted in, uh, in the humiliation and, and the, the loss of power, the secession of, of Hong Kong, and it's seen that that went on for essentially 100 years until 1949. So again, talk to most people in China about these things coming, and immediately there will be some reaction, whereas I think in Britain still, it will be somewhat fuzzy, and, and if at all, it will be properly linked to, to I suppose, consumer articles, to maybe spices or teas or if you go to the very touristy Twinings shop on the Strand, which is the original Twinings tea building, a very, very small frontage, only about three metres across, a small mm. white building, mm. with two, uh, in inverted commas, Chinamen kind of <laughs> reclining on the, uh, on the pediments, as if in total happiness with the tea trade with, with Britain. Um, and these representations are, as, as with thousands of others, kind of dominating the, the landscape. Um, before you can get into the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and look at the marvellous yeah. painting that you describe in the book of, of uh, Britannia offering her uh, receiving riches. What's, what's the exact title? Can you remember? Yeah, Britannia receiving the riches of the East. Yes, um, receiving. Yeah, which <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful picture. Um, again, with, with, uh, which does display, I suppose it's difficult to hopefully give that, 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 that image, but Britannia very, very much in a position of, of, of hierarchy and, and receiving a, essentially tribute from Indians and, 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 and Chinese and so on. I mean, certainly in, in the context of England and Britain, the amnesia which you talk about, about the company, is, I think, well observed. Except when we were doing our walks and talks and things in Tower Hamlets in the east of London, 
where it's predominantly Bangladeshi right. community. Yeah. Because, of course, when we talk about Britain, we have to talk about who in Britain yeah. is conveniently forgetting. And we, we had some extremely interesting encounters with young people in Tower Hamlets, older people in Tower Hamlets, whose political understanding of their current situation and the situation in Bangladesh was deeply informed by an understanding of what had happened in Bengal, the, the breadbasket of the world at that time, um, under the East India Company. So again, it's a question. It's a very interesting question of who we are talking to about this company. Because I remember one young man, I don't know if I was with you that mm. particular occasion, who who was sort of, sort of thumping the table with grim delight that anybody was trying to, to talk about this in a political way that was relevant to now. Right. And could help his generation yeah. as an 18, 19 year old dealing with racism, dealing with unequal opportunities, dealing with family back in Silet. Or very interesting contrast between the museological, the white dominated museological world, which maybe the heritage world, which wants to shut it down, or the business world, which may want to shut it down, and mm. other communities for whom it is a vital part of reclaiming their history. Yes, and I think that's one of the interesting things which has happened over the last five years because. Obviously, in a sense, the history of the East India Company um, has not changed. It's, it's in the past. It's, it's there. But I think what has changed, certainly in Britain, is the ways in which different communities have enc encountered that legacy. So there's a very interesting community organization in, uh, in East London, the Brick Lane Circle, which has been very working very much to actually get young people of all uh, communities and backgrounds and races to actually think about what this legacy of the East India Company means and actually in many ways how you can through encountering it and through confronting it and challenging it you can actually maybe develop a, a sense of a shared culture that is not an exclusive oh well Bangladesh people from a Bangladesh background must be interested in this and they must have a certain view but actually it's, it's, it's a way of actually saying well no this because of this company we do have actually a lot of things in common which we haven't quite explored. Um, so that is a very interesting thing and a very live thing. Current project uh, that the Brick Lane Circle is doing is looking on how Bengal dressed Britain through its textiles and so on. So again, uh, very good ways of, of, of bringing this history to life uh, and showing how these hi historical connections have, I suppose, formed the way we are today. It's been very interesting, hasn't it, over the past 12 years or so that we've been working on this on and off together and, and sometimes separately to see how different museums and galleries, let's say in London, have changed or, or have struggled with how to interpret these histories of trade in Asia, or we could even talk about slavery, it's a different subject, but it is related subject because those two things are very interwoven economically Is there, is there anything new, you know, particular moments, particular exhibitions that uh, you've seen or been involved with that why well, you've seen a shift in in thinking yeah I mean I think I mean certainly in the on the cultural sense there have been uh, three exhibitions over the last decade which I think do do pinpoint sort of three yeah three different moments for how suddenly British society is trying to come to terms with this I mean the, the first was an exhibition in British Library which was a very romanticized view on the East India Company back in back in 2000 400th anniversary and in fact had totally omitted any any reference to the opium trade so actually you had community protests from the Chinese community here here in, in Britain very strong to to introduce a, a proper explanation of the companies on the, on the in, in the opium trade 
the Encounters exhibition in the, in the Victorian Albert Museum. I think the beginnings, beginnings of a, of a, a sort of recognition about the balance of the story. And then finally here with the new permanence exhibition on the Eastern Company, which I think is actually a, a very good attempt to explain in a way that I think can be popular the, the, the full account of the East India Company, that actually it was a, a company in certain parts of its, its, its period, probably maybe for the first hundred years, which was bringing benefit, that it was bringing benefit in terms of stimulating demand for, for goods in India, it was bringing tax revenues in, in Britain and, and so on and so forth. But there was another top part of the company's story which was also bringing uh, oppression and, uh, and domination. And I think that the gallery here is an attempt to bring that, that that richness without being too didactic. I think and it, it leave, hopefully leaves the, um, the the viewer and the person to to make up their own mind. But I think lays out that this is it was a very complex story, and the company has sort of has strengths in, in in parts of its period, the earlier period, where it didn't have this overweening power, but also then uh, was an agent of. Of uh, overturning sort of existing cultures and uh, really changing the course of economic history so that wealth would flow from east to west, which again t- changing that historical historical flow from from west to east. So I think those are those are uh, interesting moments only within a decade, and I think do show I think the uh, the assertiveness of once immigrant communities now becoming playing their part within the shaping of, uh, I suppose, the public memory of the country as a whole, both the Bangladeshi and the Chinese community, uh, which means I think we do have a much richer, more honest representation of, of this uh, peculiar institution. So we've talked a bit about different communities' memories, but let's think about perhaps a bit more about business. You know, one of the things about capitalism is it likes to forget. <laughs> some very interesting writing about that as a characteristic of capitalism. But in terms of your research into this company and, and the fact that you have deliberately subtitled the book, you know, How the East India Company Shaped the Modern Multinational, you're working in the city, you understand the forces at work. I mean, how has this book gone down in sort of business communities? I think one of the things, again, that I did as I was going into the, into, into the heart of the matter was looking at some of the, I suppose, some of the characters of that time who we still draw on their, their, their learnings and teachings. Every like Adam Smith, Edmund Burke, Karl Marx, very, very different people. Adam Smith, I suppose, the, seen as the father of, of liberal economics. Edmund Burke, the father of political conservatism. Karl Marx, leading the, com- the communist uh, movement. And all in very different ways encountered the company over in, in a period of from, let's say, 1770 to... 1858, 1860, and all critical, maybe from quite different perspectives. Adam Smith, a supporter of of free trade, but very critical of corporations, particularly their monopoly power, uh, and particularly seeing how the management of these sort of great corporations would lead to negligence, as, as, as he put it, both because of the, the scale issue, because he was interested in open open markets, and the monopoly obviously was against that, but he was also particularly concerned about the, the uh, shareholder listing point of that, and, and the tendency towards speculation and abuse. And uh, I mean, it, it's interesting, again, going, going back through into, into Adam Smith's work, and realising that when he wrote, I think it was his third edition of The Wealth of Nations, he actually wrote back to his editor and saying, look, I want to add another section to the book 
about the behavior of corporations because we have this this egregious example uh, of of the East India Company. I suppose when you're talking to a modern business audience, um, drawing on the reality of Adam Smith and actually placing his views in his time, this was one of his the big things he was he was struggling with. I think you 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 get a I suppose a more honest response. Edmund Burke again, a conservative. Um, but again, he was seeing his reaction to the East India Company and the way it destabilized and overthrew into sort of turmoil Bengal society was, in a sense, in many ways, as similar to his reactions to the French Revolution. His opponent, his opposition to the East India Company was because it was revolutionary, in a sense, because it was this revolutionary power which was going into uh, to, to India and overturning all these established relations and leading to. Uh, impression in the results. So again, there was a sort of you could have a conservative critique as well as a let's say a, a liberal economic, and then a, Karl Marx, who's out to the end, I suppose it was uh, really for his purposes, I suppose an agent or, or a, uh, a tool of the, the British ruling class, um, which had sort of turned from being the the the, sort of the trading class to the to the, the what he called the moneyocracy. So again, very different, very different perspectives but all ones that I think have, have resonance uh, today. And I think also, again, help us to, when we're looking at those, those, those figures and their ideas, root them in, the, in, in their realities um, so they're not abstract. I, I've arranged at the end of the second edition of the book to read you really itemising, you know, like a, a sort of manifesto of what could be done or what should be done in light of what we learn from the East India Company. You give us a, you give an analysis of what you call the trinity of design flaws, mm-hmm. um, speculative temptations of executives and investors, the drive for monopoly control, and absence of automatic remedy for corporate abuse. You make a series of recommendations, and then you talk about some progress that one could see in the UK 2006 Companies Act. Can you talk a bit more about? how you think those recommendations might play out, which have arisen from your research and from your experience? Yes, I mean, I think looking at the company and what it sort of teaches us about the sort of, I suppose, the, the modern corporation, I suppose I did look at it through sort of look at, look at it with sort of four, four factors, I suppose. First is actually how this is an economic agent, so the, fi- the financing of the corporation is very pow- a powerful factor in determining its behaviour. So again, as, as we just discussed with Adam Smith, we need to be very careful about the dynamics of the, the stock market listing. It's not necessarily intrinsically a bad idea, but we need to be to recognise that there, I- there are uh, inherent uh, problems about the, the stock market listing, the tendency towards speculation. The second is the issue of scale, which again Smith brought up, and again I think uh, which we've been seeing more recently, I suppose, in the discussions around the too big to fail uh, issues, where you do have a problem where I suppose if you, the larger the organisation, where things do go wrong, obviously the, the larger organisation, the more the more magnified those problems are. The third, which we haven't really discussed, is technology and the company's technology and the way it was deploying that, um, particularly its military technology and its, and, and its shipping technology. And the fourth, then regulation, both in terms of how you how the company was, I suppose, you got the sense of a collusion between state power and corporate power in the company's case, but also how regulation can be used to to ensure public accountability. So in all three of those, I suppose the the, the recommendations are, are really uh, around mechanisms where you do ensure duties both of shareholders and, and company management to have 
public interest as, as part of their mandate. So it's not purely the seeking of, of the private, uh, private, private good. You do then um, have, have a more critical sense about, uh, about company scale and company size and a recognition that economic diversity is a, is a, is a value in itself and, and diversity of, of size but also of form. So one of the things, again, looking back into the, the history of the company, uh, Adam Smith was recognizing that, that certain, co- certain economic forms are, are useful for certain things. So you can have the, the joint stock company, but there are partnerships, cooperatives, um, state companies, and so on. Uh, and they all can play the different roles, so a diversity of form, diversity of size. And then, I suppose, finally, in, in, the, in, the, in the regulation point, point of thing, the we have had in the UK a reform in the last few years of the Company Act. And in, the, in a very uh, British way, the company's uh, focus, uh, focus on company is to promote the interests of its members, its shareholders. But uh, in a sort of reformist measure, company directors were asked to consider, to take into account the interests of employees and suppliers and communities and, and the wider environment, to consider but not to act. And, and I think, again, I think there, there, I suppose we've seen how it is important that there is more of a recognition that companies need to have that positive uh, requirement to also to, to act in the wider, wider interest as well. So those would be the, the, the three, I suppose, big recommendations around, around the business side in our times. So there are many examples, I suppose, of things where the company was the, I suppose, the, the, the first in, in so many of these failings of the, of the corporate form, which for me is, again, thinking about the history of it, is that the issues that we are facing with today aren't sort of accidents of circumstance, I suppose, that they are things which um, are more structural and do have sort of have patterns through history, which I, I think means that we can address them today with more, more confidence, really. So moving from the imperial gene to the ethical gene. That's right, that's right, yeah. That's something we call the, the civil corporation. And, and I think, I mean, the company corporation can be a very, very useful institution, but we really need to think about its design so that it does um, serve the interests of society. Mm-hmm.